You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Let's read chapter 3 through about verse 18, because we're going to start chapter 3. And this is another interesting thing about some of the Old Testament books. The stories in them are famous world round, whether they're received by Bible believers or not. So let's look at chapter 3 of Daniel, verses 1 through 18. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and it's with 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the, I believe it's satraps, the prefects and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. For this reason, at the time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar, the king, O king, live forever. <clears throat> you yourself, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, very well. But if you will not worship, you will immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire, and what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Sounds like disobedience to me. 
So now we come to chapter 3, which details a famous story that pretty much is known the whole world over. Chapter 3 tells the story of the three friends of Daniel who refused to worship an earthly king or god and were subsequently threatened with death in a furnace of fire and then thrown in the fire. Their survival and and the effect that that had on Nebuchadnezzar make up the rest of the story of this chapter. Um, So at this point, it is my contention, (laughs) and I think it's easy to defend, that Nebuchadnezzar, if he ever trusted Christ, trusted the Lord, has not done that so far. He has no faith in Jehovah God. He's going to kill people who serve other gods uh, or other images. So verse 1 says, Nebuchadnezzar the king made the image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. (laughs) There's much speculation as to when this occurred. Some think it was as many as about 18 years after Nebuchadnezzar's ascension to power. Others put it at about 8 to 10 years after, 8 to 10 years into his reign. There's some evidence that it actually may have followed a military, an attempted military coup by the Babylonian military in late 595 to 594 BC, which Nebuchadnezzar put down viciously and disposed of, if you will, those those uh, military officers that had led the coup. So successfully did he deal with this coup, this rebellion, that he later even conquered more territories with the same military. In the Septuagint, the statue was connected with the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonian king, which is referenced in Second Kings and in Jeremiah. So for those who want, you can go to Second Kings 25, 8 through 10, and this is what it says. Now, Bear in mind, this describes the destruction of Jerusalem. It doesn't talk about this event with with Daniel's three friends. It just talks about the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, on the seventh day of the fifth month, which was the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Then even every great house he burned with fire. So all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls around Jerusalem. And then Jeremiah chapter 52, verses 12 through 14, it says, Now on the tenth day of the fifth month, which was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, (laughs) king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard who was in the service of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses of Jerusalem, even every large house he burned with fire. So all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down all the walls around Jerusalem. So this is a pretty significant destruction of the city, of the houses, of the palace, of all the great houses. So the houses of the rich, houses of some of the poor, destroyed. Jerusalem would have been left in tatters. But um, it doesn't say anything about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So all of these propositions, however, are simply opinions, for there is nothing historically that connects the erection of the statue with the destruction of Jerusalem. At any rate, there is no doubt that it did happen after the events of Daniel chapter 2. We see reference to the fact that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were officers in the province, as mentioned in Daniel 2.49. So it says in the last verse of chapter 2, And Daniel made request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. So Daniel made the request. 
They were appointed to positions. They were in those positions when this statue was erected. They chose not to, to fall down, and they were turned in by the Karens of the, I mean by the people of the day. By the tattletales of the day. I shouldn't use that name because there's very nice Karens out there. <coughs> so, and then at the end of the chapter we find, at the end of this chapter, we find out that after their refusal to compromise their principles, then the king caused Shadrach, verse Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon, verse 30. So these events occurred after Daniel chapter 2. Why do I say it that way? Because there's people who, in their effort to pick apart the book of Daniel, want to switch the chapter order. Because it was written in the second century, don't you know? It was written as a history. No, it wasn't. It was written in the 6th century B.C., and it was full of prophecies that the Lord saw fit to come to have come true. So, the statue, another uh, critical, uh, another critics, that they, another grenade that the critics lob at this was the size of the statue and what it was made of and, and etc. Well, this statue would have been a common creation of the kings of old. Very likely it was wood, Overlaid with gold. It was disproportionate. If you, if you do the figures, you know, six cubits wide, 60 cubits tall. It was disproportionate unless there was a large base, and we'll talk about that large base later. And some believe that that is what is described here. It was 99 feet tall and about nine feet in width. Have any of you seen the statue of Jesus over Rio de Janeiro? That's approximately the size of this statue within a few feet, actually within just a few feet. I think that statue is 90 feet tall. <clears throat> there are multitudes of ancient monuments like this. The Colossus of Rhodes comes to mind, which was 70 cubits tall. And while Nebuchadnezzar was certainly wealthy enough to have built this statue entirely of gold, it was, like I said, most likely wood plates overlaid, or wooden overlaid with plates of gold. Herodotus describes the statue of Bel, or Marduk, which is a Babylonian god, being overlaid with 800 talents of gold. So I did, I went online the day I wrote this up and figured out what that would be worth today. Do you know how much money was wasted on a f statue of a pagan god? Any guesses in today's numbers? If you said the ION with a B, you were close. Yeah. It was um, $1.32 billion worth of gold. In, in tribute to a pagan god. Now, there's much speculation as to what the statue looked like. Some think it was a statue of Nebuchadnezzar. However, there is no clear history of the, the Babylonian kings making statues of themselves. They generally made statues of their gods. It was more likely his patron god, Nebo. Others think it was similar to an Egyptian obelisk, which is just a four-sided, like the Washington Monument, just a four-sided pillar. With chapter 2 as context, it is very likely that it was a representation of either Nebuchadnezzar or his God, and it would have drawn inspiration from the dream he had that Daniel interpreted. The statue in his dream was composed of five components. In this case, this statue was entirely of gold, most likely obliquely or surreptitiously representing Nebuchadnezzar himself the head of gold. Remember, he was. it was spoken of. Daniel told him he was the head of gold. <clears throat> uh, in some way, because Daniel had said he was the head of gold. So here we see the pride 
of Nebuchadnezzar rearing its ugly head, which he will have to deal with quite, quite, a, the Lord will have to deal with quite a few times. The reference to the plain of Dura is most likely refers to an area about six miles southeast of the city of Babylon. Um, the name of the plain, and this is from the encyclopedia, Bible encyclopedia. The name of the plain on which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, set up the great golden image, which all his subjects were ordered to worship. Opert, one of the uh, excavators of the day and of the area, placed it to the southeast of Babylon near a small river and mounds bearing the same, bearing the name of Duer or Duar were also was what seemed to be the base. And also there seemed to be what seemed to be the base of a great statue. Um, and this is a scientific expedition in the, the Mesopotamic, Mesopotamic area. Others believe the name to indicate a portion of the actual site of Babylon within the Great Wall, the Duru of the city, perhaps the rampart designated Dur-Suzana, Suana, excuse me, Suana, the rampart of the city. So it was either a few miles southeast or it was right inside the city. At any rate, it was associated in an area and raised to such a height that people all around would be able to see it. It would be very clear to them in the city and without. Um, the, a, a statue 90 feet tall can be seen from quite a ways in flat ground. Really quite a ways. You could see if there was a statue that tall in Sandpoint from here, it would be really easy to see it if there weren't a bunch of stuff in the way. Another issue of note is that the dimensions of the statue introduced the number six quite unintentionally. Lots have been made over this. The numerologists in... Uh, not necessarily in ranks of Christianity, but numerologists have made quite, quite a bit of hay with the sixes. The simple fact is that the Babylonian numeric system was a sexidental, sexidental numerical system. It was based on the number six, and I'll talk about that in a minute here. Um, this seemingly insignificant detail has no numerology content, but does add credence to the entire story of Daniel because the Babylonian number system was a sexagesimal or base six number system. This system of numbers is still in use today. Do you know where? How many seconds are there in a minute? Why not a hundred? We're base ten. How many minutes are there in an hour? What? How many degrees are there in a compass, 360. And how many minutes are in a degree? 60. We still use the, the base six system quite a bit. So time and direction. <laughs> and, it, and that's really all it was, was that the, when the Babylonians would make something, they would make it according to their numerical system. It would be just logical. Uh, when we build, which it's always struck me, why we have our studs 92 and 5 eighths, but that's another story. Yeah. That's so that the two top plates and the bottom plate will add up to a, an eight foot sheet of plywood, I guess. But we deal in eights. Okay. Finally, Daniel was not present for the ceremony. So this can indicate that some time had passed and he was likely on the business of the king somewhere else in the province. Um, because had he been there, he would have been called to, to, to the, to the plane because it was calling all of the, the head honchos. Um, and we'll see that in a minute here. Any questions or comments about verse one? Verse two. So then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. If this loyalty oath procedure did take place, subsequent yes. What does Daniel 
If he had been there, yes, but he was not present. Well, assuming he didn't bow down, and I think we can all make that assumption that he wouldn't have bowed down, right? No, he would have been subject. It wouldn't have to just been Jews. If there had been a an Indian satrap who hadn't bowed down, he would have been sent to the to the furnace. The Babylonians liked to roast people. I did a little bit of study in their history. There's a, there's in in one reference it was. I see if I can remember it. It was like. They roasted two of ours, let's roast some of theirs. I mean, they said it much more eloquently than that. But they, they killed two of our, our soldiers, let's roast some of theirs. And that's the word they used, roast. So, it's, you know, it, it was just a matter of that type of culture, very coarse uh, culture where life had very little meaning, um, unless you were a king or somebody in position of authority. So if this loyalty procedure did take place subsequent to the military rebellion in Babylon, it would have been logical for the king to require all the people in positions of responsibility to come and pledge their fealty to him. So it would be a reminder to everybody that you need to pledge fealty to the king, and if you don't, here's what will happen to you. Like that coup I put down a couple of years ago, remember that? As, as is the case with most large governmental organizations, there would have probably been quite a few people involved in the named positions here. Government left to itself grows and, or, or even left to itself and attempted to be keeping from growing still grows. And so there would have been a lot of satraps and all of those other names. Any questions or comments about that? Verse three. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Some of these offices are Babylonian words, and some are Persian. Daniel probably updated this when he wrote the book. Of course, the fact that there are differences has elicited comment from Daniel deniers. That's what I'm going to call them, Daniel deniers. Most likely... When Daniel wrote this book, the Persians had come to power and would have been normal for him to update the information with those terms that would be, make sense in the day that he wrote the book. Um, the fact is, this is in fact further proof that Daniel wrote this book 600 years before Christ as it demonstrates clear familiarity with these offices that existed during Nebuchadnezzar's reign. These are the positions described by a commentator. These positions are described by a commentator this way. The satraps were the highest political offices in each province. The prefects, princes, were military chiefs. The governors, remember that this was a a nation of many peoples and tribes, many different peoples and tribes. The governors, or captains, were heads of sections of the provinces, so maybe counties, if you will. The counselors, which were advisors or judges, were high-ranking judges. The treasurers were superintendents of the treasury of the independent areas, individual areas. The judges, or counselors, were secondary judges, and the magistrates, sheriffs, were lower-level officials, lower-level legal officials. The rulers, or officials, were subordinates of the satraps. They would have been directly serving under the satraps. These positions would have represented all of the administrative government of the empire, and there would have been many languages involved. Thus, the use of musical instruments to signal the time to bow down. The entire concept is in close keeping with the way the ancients did things. Often they would use music to to signal um, a particular 
activity that needed to happen. You notice the sounding of, of uh, coronets or trumpets during the times of war to signal, and we used it in our cavalry. There's, there's reveille, there's attack, there's charge, there's get out of here, you idiots, you know, or, or whatever, retreat. Um, all kinds of different things, and, and you would know what each tune was, what each of those tunes meant. So this was very common, very common in ancient times. So then the herald loudly proclaimed in verse 4, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. So based on the translation of these words, especially the last one in this verse, which is translated speech, the word language, one could properly assume that when the herald gave this command, it would have been translated into the languages of all the assembled officials. This word for herald in the Chaldean, another place for Daniel deniers to camp, karaz, K-A-R-O-Z, resembles the Greek karux, K-E-R-U-X. Some critics have challenged that because of the presence of Greek words Daniel wrote in the second century. It has been B.C. It has been noted, however, that this word has been traced back to the old Persian word karusa, which means caller, someone who calls out something. Many of these words seem to have been incorrectly assigned to the Greek language when they were either Chaldean or Old Persian, and this actually strengthens the position that the book was written 600 years before Christ, rather than weakens it. Verse 5, that at the moment... So let's read 3 and 4 together, 4 and 5 together, I mean. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment, verse 5, you hear the sound of the horn, flute, is it lyre or lyre? Lyre, okay, so I've been okay. I wasn't lying. The horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of music. I thought bagpipes were Scottish. You are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. The familiarity in this culture with the particular type of instruments was well established, and those who were given the command to pay attention to the sound of these instruments would have known what was being referenced. They would have been comfortable with this religious association between their responsibilities as government officials and worship. They would have been comfortable with that in this particular culture. Some of the instruments in the list it has been challenged are of Greek origin. Well, of course, if they're of Greek origin, it must have been written in the second century. Dr. Edwin Yamauchi, an eminent ancient Old Testament scholar, I don't know if he's ancient, but he's an Old Testament, was an Old Testament scholar, pointed out, however, that it was common for agents to have foreign musicians and foreign instruments in their courts. As one commentator points out, the argument actually disintegrates because if Daniel was actually written in Greek, there would be far more Greek words than there are. The Babylonians and Greeks had significant interaction culturally and economically at this time. So this would have been normal. Further studies by Yamauchi, as cited in Walvert's commentary, demonstrate that not only are the Greek words to be expected, the situation illustrates the interchange of commerce and cultures in the ancient world. And Dr. Charles Dyer has categorized the instruments this way. The first instrument um, was a horn. That one's an easy one. Though it usually referred to the horn of an animal, it is also described, it also described musical instruments made of wood or metal. Then there's the flute. The second instrument was a pipe. This identification being based on the fact that the word comes from the root that means to hiss. With the third instrument, Daniel introduced a new grouping in Nebuchadnezzar's uh, musicians, the lyre. 
While the first two instruments are wind instruments, the next three are stringed instruments. The first of these is translated as lyre and has variously been identified as a harp, a lyre, or a zither. The trigon may be identified with the Greek sambuke and the Roman sambuka, in the King James, uh, which was a horizontal angular harp. This word was correctly, incorrectly translated as sackbut in the King James. The word translated harp was likely a trapezoid-shaped dulcimer, either plucked or played with a small a plectra, a small piece of metal or wood. So, like, um, you've seen a dulcimer. Most of you have seen them. Or even what come to mind in my mind was a um, xylophone. But not, not the same. That would not have been strings. <clears throat> the final instrument is tr- translated bagpipes, but this identification is problematic. There is good instrumental, good linguistic evidence for identifying it as a drum similar to a timpani. Besides, it would seem odd to list two wind instruments and three stringed instruments followed by another wind instrument. The final instrument is for percussion. However, the order of the instruments is harmonious. Daniel would have listed two wind instruments, then three stringed instruments, then one percussion instrument. While exact identification of the instruments remains difficult, here is the proposed listing Dr. Dyer gives. Horn, double reed pipe, lyre, harp, dulcimer, and drum. At any rate, it would have been a melodious uh, call to order. And so their instruments, and I had pictures. I've neglected to bring the the uh, thumb, thumb drive that has the um, PowerPoint on it. I had some images that were made of the kinds of instruments that have been found in uh, archaeological digs that probably, it, that probably correspond to these. So those are the instruments. And the idea was that once everybody had the command and knew that they were to listen for music, everybody would know what the music meant. What did the music mean? Fall down. Kneel. Get on your face before the false god. (laughs) Verse 6. But whoever does not fall down and worship the image, worship, shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. This command would have, for the most part, have fallen on receptive ears. In ancient times, people were not reared with the sense of the rights they had, but with the understanding of conformity to the ruling hierarchy. That's how they were reared as children. It would have never occurred to them to say, I'm not falling down and worshiping some false god. It would have only occurred to those who had been raised with an understanding of their inherent worth and the God, a true God, that they would serve who had given them life and given them rights and responsibilities. To these people, everything flowed through the gods to their almost deity-like ruler, the king. And so if he said jump, you would just, you wouldn't even ask how high, you would just jump. And they, this was normal. It was, it was normal for all these people. If we had been there and been able to watch it, we would have seen an immediate fall of everybody but three people, which would have been pretty impressive. I want to be one of those. <clears throat> the idea of uniformity in religious worship was the rule of the day, and people would not have even thought to question it because they had been so conditioned from birth. They came from stock that from time immemorial had been reared with the idea that the civil authority could command fidelity to a god. Your county commissioners can tell you which god to worship. Your state legislators have the authority, it's in statute, to tell you 
who you are going to worship. Imagine that. Do you, I mean, doesn't that just kind of twang in your head as way off? That's how they were reared. That's what it was like. So whether this was a statue that represented Nebuchadnezzar's patron god or a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself, the idea of prostrating yourself before it would be comforting to the average citizen because you would be rendering obedience to that which protected you, that which was your life, if you will. It was no slight to your own gods to worship someone else's gods in an age of polytheism. There were, I don't know how many gods there are in the Indian pantheon, but someone said something like 10,000. And holy mackerel, how would you, well, probably mackerel were holy too. I shouldn't have said that. But how would you know elephant gods and snake gods and moon gods and mountain gods and river gods and tree gods and leaf gods and, sorry, I'm really glad we serve the one true God. So, of course, the Jews had been reared to love and worship the one true God and would have been deeply offended by this call to worship. And if they had the courage to do so, they would not have bowed down. Nebuchadnezzar, with regard to refusal to bow down, he regarded refusal to bow down as both disrespect to the gods and treason to the nation. So it was tied together. Disrespect of their gods was treason to the nation. And these crimes were punishable by death. Some critics, because they believe this book to have been written in the second century B.C., draw a connection here between the persecution of Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 to 167 B.C. They claim this would be the historical context for the story. Nebuchadnezzar was not attempting, as Antiochus was, to destroy the Jewish religion. So there's no connection here. Nebuchadnezzar was simply... He had created a loyalty oath, probably following on the heels of a rebellion. And he wanted to make sure everybody knew, don't do that. This was, he was not attempting to destroy the Jewish, the Jewish religion. He allowed them to worship their God. Actually, probably delightedly allowed them to worship their God. He talked about it in chapter, we looked at it in the earlier chapters. The, another interesting bit of information. The word translated immediately is the Chaldean word for hour, and it is the first introduction of the concept of timekeeping in the Old Testament. The furnace mentioned here was most likely a kiln constructed of bricks and used for many of Nebuchadnezzar's wide-ranging projects. And by the way, on the plains of Dura, I might have it here somewhere else, but on the plains of Dura, where this uh, Opert believes the statue to have been erected, they found a gigantic brick base that would have been perfect for mounting a giant statue on, and most likely could have been, most likely could have been. A few years before this incident in in about 597 B.C., before this incident of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the prophet Jeremiah wrote about two Israelite prophets who had predicted Nebuchadnezzar's downfall. Guess what happened to them? They were thrown into a furnace in the same way and their death was supposed to become a curse to those who would be used among the exiles. Jeremiah 29, 21, 29, 21 through 23 says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, concerning Ahab, the son of Coliah, and concerning Zedekiah, the son of Maaseah, who are prophesying to you falsely in my name. The prophecy that Nebuchadnezzar would be overthrown was false in God's name. 
Behold, I will deliver them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will slay them before your eyes. Because of them, a curse will be used by all the exiles from Judah who are in Babylon, saying, May the Lord make you like Zedekiah and like Ahab, whom the king of Babylon roasted in the fire. Because they have acted foolishly in Israel and have committed adultery with their neighbor's wives and have spoken words in my name falsely, which I did not command them, and I am he who knows and am a witness, declares the Lord. Why is it that false prophets, more often than not, are also serial adulterers. You find that throughout history. That's an interesting concept to me. That was verse 6. And we'll we'll finish up with verse 7 today. <clears throat> Therefore at that time, because we're finishing up verse 7, because at 8 is where the accusation is made and the Daniel Daniel's three friends are brought before the king in a trial. And it's quite quite uh, intricate and interesting. So, therefore, verse 7, at that time, when all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, bagpipe, and all kinds of musics, the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. There was immediate obedience to all of those who were pagan, immediate obedience by all of those who were pagan. They fell down immediately at Nebuchadnezzar's command. And clearly, as we will see in verse, verses 8 and, and beyond, there were people in the crowd who either were there intentionally to report what was going on back to the king, or they were just busybodies. But either way, Daniel, Daniel's three friends will be accused before the king by people who noticed, it would have been easy to notice. Everybody else would have fallen down but these three men. Jenny. They would have given the impression of worship, right? No, there was really no. Right. Legislation does not touch the heart. And that's why legislation will never change this country. The hearts of men must be changed. And it's happened. It's happened. It's happened in this nation. Good point. Good point, Jenny, that legislation cannot make the heart change. You can't legislate the heart. So this verse indicates that the statue was most likely a... Yes. Those who bowed didn't bow down then were to be cast into the furnace in Revelation. Those who won't bow down to the Lord will be cast into the lake of fire. And again, the Lord doesn't legislate the heart. No, they didn't know. That's what they were raised with. They were, they were comforted by the false god. They were comforted by their rulers being able to command them to worship a false god. That was order and it was... It was stability for them. Yes. Yeah. So true worship sometimes is destabilizing. <laughs> this verse indicates that the statue was probably a deity because the Chaldee word here translated worship means to fall down or to prostrate oneself. And it was generally associated with the idea of worshiping God or a false prophet, a false god, excuse me, a deity. Fear of death in a fire if not genuine adoration of the false god, caused everyone to follow them and immediately fall down and worship the image. So to Jenny's point, probably most of the people on that plane genuinely worshipped and fell down. But there were probably some there, I would allege, who fell down because they just didn't want to burn up. They didn't believe the false god. They just And either one is an affront to, to Jehovah. But nevertheless... There were probably both types on that plane that day. 
And some fell down in fear, some fell down in worship. And and it's interesting what fear can make you do. It's, yes. As transgression increases, grace increases. Yeah, it's unbelievable. And and to our, to us who serve the true God, what a delight it is. Because he, he commands uh, a worship that we give willingly out of our hearts. That, uh, I just, I, I can't imagine what it must have been like back there. I've been in situations where I was the only no vote. And it's intimidating, you know. Even you, I can do it. I'm tough. And then when you're there and everybody else's hands are up and you're going, oh, boy. <laughs> no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you're an idiot. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. There will be plenty who will take the mark of the beast delightedly and some who will take it out of fear, but it's still the mark of the beast. So this first does indicate, at least to us, that it was a deity. Fear of death and of fire, if not genuine adoration of the gods, caused everyone to follow them immediately and worship the image. As we know from verse 12, however, which I will read, and we will we'll kind of tie up with this, there are certain Jews, the tattletales said, whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Now, no, we'll talk about that next time. We'll talk about that next time. Because <laughs> it, you know, just like Daniel 3 follows Daniel 2, Daniel 12 follows 11, and we aren't there yet. And I'm OCD. So, so this here sets the stage for them to face Nebuchadnezzar upon being accused by the other rulers in the province. They weren't just accused by people. They were accused by the other rulers, their peers, if you will. It would have been obvious to everyone that they were not falling down, and they would have been because they would have been the only people standing up. The only people standing up. And I'm thinking there were probably a couple thousand on that plane that day. So it would have been really obvious. Everybody else is going to... The idea was not just to get on your knee, like sometimes we will do, you know, get on your knee. It was to fall. Your face has to go to the ground. So that would have been really obvious, really obvious. And and you can picture some of the people down there going, I see you. You're going to die. You're going to burn. Those who did not fall down and worship would have been fearful of being punished themselves, but they if they didn't turn in their their supposed non-obedient brethren. And so it is that, we'll call it that fear will often cause people to turn on one another. So who knows? Maybe some of those people that turned the three, the three, the three friends of Daniel in were actually in some way, shape, or form friends with them. But fear of for their own skin, you never know what you're going to do until your skin's on the line, until you're actually... Faced with the bullet for you, if you will, if I can use that horrifying metaphor. That's when you know what you're going to do. When it comes time for you to stand, when everybody else is bowing. And three out of, I don't know, 1,200, 1,500, pretty small, pretty small minority. But what happens to them later on is so remarkable and so wonderful. And you guys don't know anything about it because you haven't read the rest of Daniel ever, right? So I'm just not going to ruin the story. Any questions or comments before we close? This story, again, is known worldwide. I mean, it's it's known by people who don't believe in God. The Song of the Three Holy Children, 
the, the you know, I, I watched, I was, you know, doing Googling or, or actually duck, duck going, um, looking up links. And one of the links was Louis Armstrong singing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it was pretty good. Anybody who likes Louis Armstrong's voice, you know, which is like Bob Dylan's voice, which is to say it isn't a voice. <clears throat> so, but so if you're interested, if I put that little bug in your ear, Louis Armstrong, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's a cute little song. Let's close in prayer. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.